Studio Ervo and Bonfire Press present Essence House, 1995, by Eric J. Cockrell and Chuck Pino, read by Michael Goodrick. January 4th, 1995. Thick, opaque clouds blanketed the sky over Essence House. Despite the ominous skies, the small weathered airplane hangar in the rear of the property was alive for the first time in nearly two years, and the house itself was aglow. The sound of children running through the house echoed through the halls. Mom, Tim stuck gum in my hair, screamed Elise. Nancy Edmond grabbed Tim by the ear as he tried to shuffle around them through the hall. Tim, you're setting a poor example for your six-year-old cousin. Ah, he thought it was funny. Tim replied as he yanked his ear from her grip, and he and Tristan ran upstairs. It was a regular tradition in the family for the kids to set up blankets and build a fort in the attic near the window to watch the departure. Nancy, Rick's gathering luggage. Do you have anything that's not by the door? Andrew shouted across the hall, stepping out from his father's former study. He never claimed the study as his own. He took up the mantle of patriarch of the family, and all the responsibilities that came with heading up the Essence Guard, but there was nobody that could replace Roland. Not yet, at least. Since Roland's passing, a stasis fell over the house. Things went as they should, and orders were followed per Roland's design, but everything felt very temporary. I've got a bag I've just started in my bathroom that I'll bring down myself. First, I have to work your son's chewing gum out of Elise's hair, Nancy replied with an air of annoyance. Always my son when he's in trouble, Andrew chuckled, withdrawing an envelope from Roland's desk and reading it one more time. It was the last in a long line of envelopes addressed to him with a very specific date to read it on, and Andrew knew it was important to open them on the appropriate dates. For Andrew, January 4th, 1995. Dearest son, I am certain there will be some hesitation to postpone the visit, to welcome Florence's child into the world. Andrew paused for a moment, thinking about how amazing it was that Roland was so confident in the outcomes of future events. Without access to a future object or any knowledge of a future time, travel to a future destination simply was not possible. Yet, Roland had all of the information he needed to orchestrate the movements of the guard anyhow. It was bewildering, to say the least. Trust that this trip is necessary. As hard a decision as it is on us all, you cannot delay. I love you, son. Your dedication and leadership in my absence has served the essence well. And that was that. Andrew had his marching orders. Paperclip to the envelope was another envelope that was addressed to a loyal friend of the family, Barnabas Krimke, and dated the same day. Andrew tucked the letter into the inside pocket of his jacket and made his way down the hall, passing Nancy, Elise, and a jar of peanut butter with a pair of scissors beside it. As he stood there, trying to figure out whether he could be a help or would be a nuisance, Rick popped out of the door ahead of him. Hey brother, I've got about half the luggage on board. Are you sure about this? The rain is starting and the weather reports are calling for some really ugly stuff. Rick sounded worried. You always worry, Rick. Gather some confidence. I have faith in your ability, and honestly, the future seems to be written for us. We're as good as gold, assured Andrew. I trust you, Andy. 
You've never let us down. You know me, always worrying. It's just... Oh, nothing. You've heard it all. I do. I trust you, brother. They laughed as Rick headed up the stairs. He made it up two flights of stairs and headed down a hall and up a smaller flight of stairs. As Rick made it to the attic, the halls grew dark. He dragged his hand along the hall as he approached the room ahead, guided by only a trickle of light from outside coming through the window. As he entered the room, he heard clicks on either side of him and two faces appeared on either side. Suddenly, he felt hands grabbing at his legs. Rick immediately reached down, grabbing his son and nephew, and tossed them gently onto the sleeping bags by the window. Chuckling, Rick said, Nice try, guys. You'll never pull one over on old Rick. Tim stood up tall. Someday, I'll get you. Tristan just laughed and clicked the flashlight off and on from his blanket. I know it's only a few days, but I'm going to miss you, kids. Rick sat on a blanket pile and pulled them close. Please listen to Mrs. Gianni and Barnabas while we're away. They'll be reporting back to us. And Tim, be good to your sister. You're going to be the man of the family while we're away. You take care of these two. I will, Uncle Rick. Promise. Tim remained tall and serious. Rick ruffled the hair on Tim's head and stood up. All right, we're almost set. Is your base camp all set up here? Tristan responded. It sure is. Rick smiled. Good. You know, Uncle Andy, your Aunt Flo and I, all set up in the same spot when we were children, when your grandfather would take to the air. Rick's nostalgia began to fade, and he turned to walk out. Come down and say bye to your family, and then you guys can come right back up to watch the plane take off. As Rick descended the stairs and entered the kitchen at the end of the hall, he interrupted Andrew speaking with their old friend Barnabas. Barney! shouted Rick, with a bit of over-the-top exclamation. He walked up and hugged the old man, who was not especially pleased with the nickname, but grew to expect it. Good evening, Richard. Or should I say, Dick? Barnabas retorted with a smile. Andrew cut off the exchange. All right, guys, it's about time to go. Barnabas, I'm going to leave this with you. He handed Barnabas the envelope from the study. And we are about on our way. Please give the kindest regards to Miss Florence, sir, Barnabas requested. He slipped his old pocket knife out, sliced upon the envelope, and read the enclosed slip of paper as the brothers exited the room. A look of concern and confusion befell his face. A tall, dark-haired woman stepped into the hall and gripped Rick's arm, dragging him into an adjoining room. Ah, there you are, my dear, Rick addressed his wife, Alyssa. She smiled. I got the things on the list, but I could not find any of that fizzy candy you like. Rick, I gotta say, are you sure we're okay leaving tonight? They're expecting some really horrendous weather. Rick shrugged. Andy says we'll be okay, and I trust him. But if it bothers you that much, I would not object to you staying with the kids. Alyssa looked around. You know I don't care to be alone in this place. I'll go. I just hope you're right. Sweetheart, you are not the only one. He smiled and pecked her on the cheek. Rick and Alyssa headed for the door to find Andrew and Nancy giving their final orders to their children. Tristan ran up and threw his little arms around his parents' legs. I'm going to miss you, Mommy and Daddy, he said as Rick scooped him up for a big family hug. Barnabas stood outside the door as the four passengers headed across the lawn. He was clearly not at ease. Mrs. Gianni approached. 
I know that look. What's bothering you, Mr. Krimke? Barnabas turned. Something is wrong, and old Roland has left it to me to fix everything. I don't have a good feeling about this. He lightly placed his hand on her arm. Gather the children and bring them upstairs. I'll be here making sure nothing goes wrong. Inside the plane, Andrew, Nancy, and Alyssa sat, buckling themselves in for what was assuredly going to be a rocky flight. Rick was flicking some switches and preparing to head to his seat. Nancy smacked her head. Andrew asked, What is it, dear? Oh my gosh, Andrew, in all that fuss with Elise's hair, I forgot my toiletry bag upstairs. Is it too late? Could you run and get it? Nancy asked of her husband. Rick shouted from up front, I'll run back. You guys are already settled in. Barnabas stood in the drive at the side of the house, watching as Rick ran back across the lawn to the front door. His uneasy feeling had not subsided. He paid close attention to the plane, almost expecting something to happen as Rick exited, but it sat still with no signs of trouble. What had Roland's note meant in charging Barnabas with the lead position on the Essence Guard, and why was it explicitly stated something to the effect of keeping an eye on Rick and further instructions to come? It was all very disconcerting. Moments later, Rick emerged from the house. It appeared that he had opted for a different jacket, and he carried a bag. Barnabas waved, but it was not returned as Rick rushed toward the plane. As Rick entered the plane, Barnabas heard Mrs. Gianni shouting, Stop him! As Rick once again emerged from the house, carrying a bag. Barnabas did a double take, but he knew better than to spend his time wondering and leapt into action. He raced across the lawn at his top speed. A look of shock overcame Rick as Barnabas plowed into him. The bag in his hand flew into the air and toiletries rained out over the yard. Barney, I don't know what's come over you, but this is not cool, Rick said angrily. The pleas of Roland to not trust Rick and ensure the flight is uninterrupted rang in Barnabas' head as he threw himself onto Rick and held his arms behind his back. You crazy old coot! My father respected you, and Andrew tolerates you, but this will not end well for you if you don't let me go. Rick pulled an arm free, and his flying fist caught Barnabas on the chin. Please, Rick, we can talk about this when the plane is in the air, but you will not stop this flight, Barnabas pleaded. I said from the start this flight was a bad idea, but nobody would listen to me. Rick pulled himself up and turned to run toward the plane. Barnabas once again threw himself at Rick. As Rick turned to throw another fist, his head slammed to the ground and he fell unconscious. Unaware of the struggle outside, Andrew and his brother were once again arguing about the weather and the flight. We've been over this, Rick. We have to make this flight. Now, let's get out of here. Rick was determined. Andy, you have no idea what you're talking about. You will all die. We can't do this. Everybody, get off the plane now. He turned to his wife. Please, honey, you were concerned too. We can't do this. I can't live without you. Rick, you're scaring me. Maybe we should talk about this in the kitchen, Alyssa offered. No, Andrew demanded. Just then, Rick fell backward, as if struck in the gut. His face drained of color, and he stammered toward the cockpit. Rick, are you all right? Andrew asked, concerned. With a blank stare, Rick muttered, 
This was always going to happen, as he slid down into his seat. Rick started the engine and flipped some switches without saying another word. I'm sorry, brother, but I really think everything will be fine, Andrew explained. He patted his brother on the shoulder and returned to his seat. Barnabas knelt in shock alongside Rick outside of the plane, a pool of blood growing around Rick's lifeless body. What had he done? He stared, unable to move, as the plane lifted off and left the Essence House grounds. He could hear the cheers of the kids overhead, yelling goodbye from an open attic window. Mrs. Gianni let out a scream as she approached Barnabas and Rick. What? What? She stuttered. What is this? What did you do? Barnabas stared into the sky, holding Rick's head in his hand. I don't even know, Lily. I don't even know. All I know is that I hold Rick here in my arms, as Rick has also taken flight with his family. This essence stuff is too much, Barnabas. We should never have gotten involved, she confessed as she helped Barnabas to his feet. We're way beyond that now. I'm going to hide Rick and get cleaned up. You look after the kids. We'll call a meeting soon and figure this out. Mrs. Gianni headed back toward the house, completely shaken but driven by duty to the children in the attic. She did not understand how Barnabas could be as calm as he was. What had he been through in his past that could prepare him for a moment like this? Rick was in a daze at the plane controls. He was an excellent pilot with many flights under his belt, but he was not in his right mind the storms ahead were not something he had ever dealt with before. At least, not one of that magnitude. Are you okay, Rick? asked Alyssa. He'll be fine, assured Andrew. He's gonna need all his concentration to get through this one. How about we play a card game? Just then, the plane leaned left and then right, did a full spin, and began spiraling out of control. Rick pulled at the controls and did his best to try to regain control of the plane as it lost altitude. The passengers, his family, screamed as they slammed back and forth into the walls, some still belted in. In the chaos, Rick unbuckled and attempted to get back to his family when the back of the plane blew out and he was thrown into the air. Debris rained down as the plane and its passengers were scattered across a field. It was the early hours of morning when a squad car approached the Essence House gates. Barnabas met the vehicle at the gate and pulled it open to allow them through. The officer in the driver's seat stepped out. Sir, I'm sorry to bother you at this hour. May I ask about your relationship with this property? Name's Barnabas. I'm a friend of the family, taking care of the little ones while the family is on a trip. Well, Barnabas, you should know there's been an accident said the officer. For the second time that night, Barnabas dropped to his knees. It was as he'd feared. The family, his friends, were gone. And he may have had a hand in their demise. After describing the crash site and explaining that they were still recovering bodies, the officer left Barnabas and headed back down the drive. January 17, 1995. Hey, get your hands off that. I had it first. 
bellowed the whiny voice of a kid about half Tristan's age. Tristan let go and stepped back. He immediately frisked his belly and arms, much the way security at the airport might. He was all there and accounted for. What the hell's wrong with you guys? This is the last copy and it's mine. Try a different store, the kid continued. Look, kid, it was an honest mistake. It's yours. Sorry, Tristan explained, looking down to find Tim on the ground, holding his head and mumbling something incoherent. Is there a problem here? said the store clerk as he stepped around the corner, wearing a tie-dyed t-shirt with a black light image of a Grateful Dead bear on it. When the hell did you guys get here? I didn't hear the bell ring. Not ready to answer the question at hand, Tristan asked, Can you help me move my friend? He tripped on a cassette tape on the floor of your store. I've seen bigger record shops go down due to lesser negligence. A record store. They were in a record store. Maybe manipulating time was a little more complicated than they had remembered. Grandpa Roland made it all seem so seamless and casual. Tristan's memory was fuzzy. It was a long time ago. But he recalled the way his grandfather would walk through the house with them, pick up an item, and they would hold on as the space around them began to... Well, it was hard to explain what the space around them did. It was almost akin to the time-lapse videos you might watch of a building being built. But it's not that simple when it happens all around you. And the winds. Grandpa referred to them as the winds of change. He had clever names for all of the things that were happening. At the time, it all felt so normal. And as the years went by, those moments just became like any other. What would he say if he knew his two favorite adventurers were on a mission without him? Tristan smiled as he was shaken from his thoughts. Get your friend out of here. I'm not scared of your lawsuit, and I don't need whatever insurance scam you guys are cooking up. Come back in a couple days when I'm not on shift. I couldn't care less. Just don't make me have to deal with that garbage. The clerk offered an exit. Tristan started to lift Tim by his arm, but Tim brushed him away. I'm good. I'm good. Let's get out of here. The two cousins headed down the aisle, past the rock section, and rounded the corner with the soundtracks. As they reached the front door, Tristan pivoted and yelled to the clerk, Hey, don't miss the Knickerbocker show this summer, or you'll regret it. The blank stares across the store were almost audible. They said so much. Tristan smiled, gave a thumbs up, and flung open the door. As the door closed behind them, the brisk winter air and a rush of freezing wind hit them, reminding Tim that he was experiencing a winter from his youth. New York winters were unforgiving back then. As they reached the bottom of the steps, Tim slugged his cousin. The hell was that for? Tristan exclaimed, grabbing his arm. What the hell was that about? Haven't we seen enough movies about this sort of thing? We can't give any information out about future events or risk altering the future. Tim shouted angrily. Tristan is as stunned. Seriously, Tim? This isn't a movie. In case you haven't noticed, we're really here. In real life. And what harm could it do to offer the guy his last chance to see Garcia play his last New York show? You know we both wish we'd had that warning. Besides all that, we literally came here with the express purpose of altering the future. Tim slumped against the brick wall of the building. Are you okay? Tristan asked, a little concerned. Yeah, I'll be fine. I seem to recall this not being unusual for me. It appears time travel gives me a bit of a headache. He stood back up, straight. 
His memories had slowly come back since discovering Essence House, though they were still jumbled, which made sense since, apparently, so was the timeline. I get it a little too. Speaking of time, we need to figure out what day and time it is. He looked up at the street signs and sighed. I'm pretty sure we're in Brooklyn. Do you remember how to take the trains upstate from here? Or do we have to steal a car and hit the 87? Tim shook his head and they began walking down the street. Up ahead was a newspaper stand. That'd give them a good amount of information. He hadn't considered the telephone booths nearby. If he'd brought change, he could just call Essence House and anonymously recommend they cancel the flight. Of course, that would be too easy. You got your cell phone with you? Tristan broke the few minutes of silence. Nah, I left it on the dash. I can't imagine cell service would work here anyways. Hell, half the time, it didn't work from the damn loop back home. And that was one of the busiest business districts in the country, explained Tim. I have a vague recollection of my dad using a cell phone on a trip to see Gramps and it working in some capacity, but it doesn't really make much sense, I suppose. As they approached the corner, the sky darkened notably. It was what you might expect of a cloud interrupting the sunlight, but there wasn't a cloud in the sky. Both noticed the change, but neither said a word. As Tim stepped into the road, he felt an impact, as if he was struck by a metal bar and he collapsed to the ground. Tim laid on the ground, but his cousin rushed in the opposite direction. Across the street, he saw a child lying face down, with a twisted bike on the road, halfway between the two of them. Tim got up and brushed himself off. He noticed that his headache was unshakable at this point. He limped a few steps, but the foot pain subsided before he made it to the bike that had assaulted him. Carrying the bike over, he kneeled down and asked, Is she going to be all right? The little brown-haired girl sat up, holding her knee that was torn open and black and blue with swelling. I'm sorry, mister. The man pushed me and I lost control. I didn't mean to hurt you. She began sobbing. What man? There was nobody else around. Don't worry about me, kid. You're in far worse shape. Tim stood back up and asked Tristan, What do we do? Did we just alter history? Jesus, Tim, do you even hear yourself? Random people have random things happen all day long. Besides, they say time heals, right? It'll get sorted out. Tristan kneeled back down. Tim pushed the bike to Tristan and he helped the little brown-haired girl get into the seat. She wobbled at first and then caught hold and raced down the street. Only in New York are kids riding bikes in January. Tim shook his head. Tim felt his cousin push him and took a few steps back to try to regain balance. He threw his arms out and felt his right arm slam into a body. He opened his eyes, expecting to see Tristan laid out on the ground. Instead, seeing a little brown-haired girl barrel her bike into another man and then steer off across the street and fall into a heap. Tim's heart leapt into his throat as he turned back to see Tristan in his foolish 90s gear running across the street and what he could only assume was himself on the ground, attempting to get up weakly. Tim, the most recent incarnation of him, ran into a nearby alley and breathed out loudly, Jesus. He took a moment to gather himself, 
two seconds into the past and he had already proven Tristan right. He could feel the headache coming on. So, okay, he had caused the trouble with the little girl. He could understand Tristan's reason for not wanting to go back, especially when it meant dealing with yourself. He hadn't thought this through well enough. He was putting himself into his own path. Everything about time travel fiction said you shouldn't interact with yourself, but he couldn't remember why. He vaguely remembered Bruce Willis watching his older self die in 12 Monkeys and decided he would give himself a very wide berth. Only in New York are kids riding bikes in January. Tim overheard his voice and tried to remember back to when he had last been there. The two had strolled over to the newspaper stand. He crept over and peered out from the alley. There they were, just as he remembered. He waited for them to finish their realization about being too late to help their parents, and then watched as they began to make their way over to the bar. He winced as tears filled his eyes, and then his vision began to dim. Worried that something was going wrong, he saw Tristan walk through the door to the bar, while Tim was grasping for a handle that wasn't there. His vision blurred further, as he could now make out two different versions of the street, one teeming with people, and the other almost empty. The two seemed to crescendo and decrescendo as his head pounded, and his eyes fought through to pry themselves open beyond a pair of wincing slits. When his double stumbled into the bar shortly after the couple came out, Tim turned back into the alley, unable to take another second of this. He attempted to prop himself up on his walking stick as a shadowy figure approached. Or did it? He couldn't tell what was real and what was all part of the fog. Taking a step forward, he felt himself trip over what he assumed was a garbage bag and hit the concrete ground hard. His strength had drained so much that he felt the stick slip from his fingers as he lay there, attempting to open his eyes but finding the task impossible. Somehow, the walking stick popped back into his hand, and he felt his hands forced to close around it. His mouth opened, but nothing came out save for a choked gasp. (gasps) Hush, son. A voice, both familiar and unfamiliar, whispered directly into his ear. He could feel the man's hot breath against his cheek. At least, he thought it was a man. You don't have much time. January 4th, 2020. 8 p.m. The passenger seat of your truck, outside of your motel room in Sands Point. I need you to think of nothing but that. But, but, he uttered, attempting to reach out, only to feel his hand clasp harder on the walking stick. Shut up, boy, or all of this is for nothing. January 4th, 2020, 8 p.m. The passenger seat of your truck at your motel room in Sands Point, New York. Do it, the voice urged. Tim relented and sunk into the pavement. Jan, truck, he muttered, eyes still closed, focusing on nothing but what the strange voice had told him. The fog gathered around him, darkening everything save for a single point of light directly ahead of him. The light didn't grow in size so much as approach closer and closer. All the while, the voice repeated the information to him, with a final verbal push of now.
As they arrived at the newspaper stand, they scoured the papers for the first one with a visible date. There it was, just above the headline that read, At least 597 are killed in Japanese quake. The date read January 17, 1995. What little color there was in Tristan's face, vacated. Jesus, I don't even remember that happening. It's crazy how things like that are lost to history. Tim offered, noticing his cousin's apparent shock. Are you okay? We're too late, Tristan mumbled. Tim grabbed the paper from his cousin's hands to take a closer look. Careful with that, unless you're buying it, and I don't see either of you reaching for your wallets. The voice of a man buried in a minimum of three layers of sooted clothes startled them. Tim looked again at the paper. They were, in fact, twelve days too late. Tim dropped the paper and turned back to Tristan. How the hell did you mess this up? The look of defeat on Tristan's face was so obvious that Tim took it no further. He was frozen in place. Neither of them paid any mind to the shouts of the overbundled jerk behind them. We're late, repeated Tristan. It is what it is now. We need to get indoors and figure out what we're doing next, Tristan. I don't suppose my debit card will get us very far in 1995. Tristan stood in the same place and mumbled, I have some old cash on me. Let's get a beer. Despite their current situation, or maybe because of their current situation, the thought of a cold beer was very appealing to Tim. The room was filled with confusion and anger. The accumulation of that combination resulted in incomprehensible noise. A noise that drowned out the clinking of glasses and laughter of the bar on the other side of the wall. There was a grunt, <coughs> and suddenly the room was focused on the man in the corner. You mean to say that Roland placed you in an alley just today to interact with his grandson? This is different than anything we've handled in the past, suggested Greg, a tall, gruff older gentleman. Barnabas stood across the room, a little shaken, but that was nothing new. He seemed to spend most of his time rattled in the couple weeks after the crash. Just minutes ago, like thirty minutes ago. I didn't know if he was going to make it. Hell, I still don't know if he made it. You sent him to a motel twenty-five years from now? We should begin monitoring the few motels in the area, Greg suggested. A younger man at the table chuckled. I'd say we have some time to get to that. I'd like to hear Barnabas explain the part where he killed Rick Edmund again. Barnabas dropped into a seat in the corner. It happened just as I said. Rick was acting funny. I witnessed two of them and had orders from Roland to stop him. But he didn't say to kill him, right? Shot a woman who was dealing a deck of cards to her tablemates. I mean, Roland didn't ask you to kill his son. As the newsstand whisked the morning's paper away in favor of the evening edition, Tim and Tristan made for the warm glow of the Miller Genuine Draft sign in the window of the building down the street. The laughter within penetrated the heavy wooden door, burdened with several layers of paint, the most recent black. Tim needed a good laugh. The reality of their failure was finally hitting him, and it wasn't sitting well. He felt anger with the cousin, who before this morning he hadn't thought of in a long time but toward whom he was beginning to feel some sense of camaraderie. 
He didn't even know how to process this feeling of loss he was beginning to feel. He was only a boy when his folks left. It was a few days past the big birthday bash. He just turned 12. Tristan, about five years his minor. Elise, 15. And their fathers were in their 30s, younger than Tim stood today. Today, well, the real today. It felt like a lifetime ago, but here it was, fresh. It only happened almost two weeks ago. If he drove out to Chicago now, he'd find himself in the spare room at Grandma's house, covered in blankets, bawling over the loss, with his dear sister Elise by his side, offering comfort. Elise, the sister that never shared with him the secrets of Essence House. How did she even know? Was it a secret shared at an age he had yet to reach? That didn't feel right. And this feeling... What was this feeling? It felt as if being in 1995 brought an abundance of unearned knowledge. Not knowledge, maybe intuition. Tim didn't know. Whatever it is, he felt it present, but could not access it. And he felt like that block brought on his headache that hung heavy on his brow. Also, he couldn't shake the feeling that he was being stopped. He didn't want to alarm Tristan, though... At times, he wanted to wring his neck, so he hadn't said anything. It wasn't something he could even put into words. There was an underscore of paranoia to his thoughts. Something just didn't feel right. As Tim pressed the door, the door appeared to press back. It wasn't locked or stuck. It sort of felt like the door just wasn't meant to be opened. Again, hard to put into words. That was perhaps the overall feeling that Tim was experiencing, Everything he did here took extra effort, an effort he could just barely make, a constant reminder that he didn't belong here. Suddenly, the door was lighter as a young couple on the other side swung it open to exit the establishment. Pardon me, said the young lady as she and her beau slipped past them, the latter handing the door back off to Tim. Tim couldn't help but snicker at the guy's purple IOU sweater the brand logo, and neck of the sweater adorned in turquoise. He looked almost as absurd as Tristan. Tim looked back. Tristan? Where was Tristan? Tim had been so lost in his thoughts that he hadn't noticed him slip away. They hadn't spoken in several minutes, but he knew he'd been right behind him. Tim looked ahead to see if Tristan had slipped into the bar ahead of him as the couple had slipped out, but the bar was desolate. The heavy door that Tim had been holding for what felt like an eternity was suddenly weightless. Had it been an eternity? A fog hung low in the air. As his headache surged, Tim felt queasy in his stomach. Was the color drained of this place, or was his vision impaired by whatever had come over his body? A noise in the back of the bar drew Tim's attention. While not typically the noisy type, the unusual circumstances piqued Tim's interest enough to drop the door and make his way across the empty bar. The bar was empty in every sense of the word, besides dust. No glasses, no bottles, no tables, no stools, no patrons, nobody to serve patrons. Not a single decoration adorned its walls, completely abandoned, save the noise of the room behind the bar. Tim rounded the bar and made his way to the room. He peeked in, trying to assess the situation without giving up his presence. 
From where he stood, he could see three people, though he felt like there may have been a couple more out of sight. Adults all, more or less, sitting around the table. They were playing a card game of some sort. It was not a joyous time being had. Tim felt confusion and anger in the room. More of that intuition, he supposed. He also felt like he recognized some of the people in the room, though he couldn't place it. Barnabas felt sick in his stomach, and a darkness began to spread across the room. His heart began pounding, and he could see from the looks on the faces around the room that he was not alone in his discomfort. Suddenly, a voice rang from the doorway that moments prior looked out on a lively bar, but now was saturated by pure nothingness. It stood devoid of all light. Well, did he, Barnabas? An unhealthy, frail figure fell against the door jamb. With more relief than dread, Barnabas leapt from his seat in the corner and raced across the room to help the man at the door. Rick Edmund? he exclaimed, throwing an arm around the broken body of his friend to assist him. The room went silent. The silence engulfed the bar and seemingly the world, as far as the occupants of this room were aware. Take your hands off me! With an instantaneous burst of energy, Rick threw Barnabas against the wall across the room. His already gray skin tightened on his face, and his eyes darkened. The lady at the table stopped shuffling her deck, and all eyes were on the confrontation. I... I heard you died in a plane crash, Barnabas offered as he cowered, eyeing the room for an escape. You slammed my head into a rock, Rick interrupted in anger. The memories in Rick's head at the moment were hard for him to make sense of, but he knew it to be true. He simultaneously recalled lying on his back in the yard in front of Essence House, as well as being blown out of a plane and the feeling of every branch that broke his body as he slammed into the forest a few miles away. Which Rick is this? asked a skinny bald man at the table, somewhat breaking the tension. The floor began to shake. Rick stood slightly hunched, body painfully contorted, slowly turned his head, letting out what began as a growl and ended in demanding, Go back to your game! The lady at the table collected the cards and shuffled them nervously. The man stood up and retorted, Rick, we all have the right to know, as members of the guard. Rick exploded in anger. That guard is a farce. A burst of energy stopped everyone in their tracks, and suddenly the room went gray, and everything slowed to a crawl. Tim leaned on the door jam a bit as his head became hazy. A heaviness in his gut gave way to a pressure in his throat and he made a noise that appeared to startle the folk in the room <coughs> as his vision faded. The last thing he heard as his eyes went black was the slap of his face hitting the mess below. A darkness grew on the ground around Rick as his shadow seemed to emanate from him and began to engulf the room. With another sudden burst of hateful energy, Rick lifted Barnabas by the throat with one arm and slammed him against the wall effortlessly. Stay away from me and the house, old man. I don't know what you did to me, but I could have saved them. You did this. You and everyone with a delusional devotion to my father. 
Barnabas knew Rick's words had some truth to them. He hung in the air, terrified, gripping Rick's arm and gasping for air. Rick released his grip and dropped Barnabas to the ground. As he turned around and exited the room, the room began to return to life. Rick made his way through the crowded bar and walked out the front door of the bar. The black door slammed shut behind him. He struggled to keep control of his body as he stepped into the brisk air and walked down the street, limping. He stopped on the sidewalk, leaning on a parking meter, and watched as a man was lifted onto a stretcher and loaded into an ambulance in front of him, and another young man climbed in to sit with him. He stared as the ambulance pulled away, then approached the cab that had been sitting at the curb. That was quick. Where can I take you now, sir? said the cab driver. Back to Sands Point, Rick replied. The driver shifted the car and pulled away from the curb. All the way out here just to pop into a bar for five minutes? I hope you don't mind me saying, sir, but that seemed like a huge waste of time. Some time passed. Tim didn't know how he knew. He'd not yet regained his vision, but it felt like it'd been some time. He laid there, not fighting whatever was happening. Was he dead? He couldn't feel his body or hear a sound. Complete silence. Then he could hear something. He didn't know what he heard. There was something there, sight unseen, but a subtle noise that reminded him of the last noise he heard. The slapping of flesh, but glitching and reverberating. He realized that his headache was gone. In his void, he no longer felt ready to pour out his insides either, but he didn't feel good. In fact, whatever was with him felt devoid of any pleasantry. It emanated dread and despair. Tim! A voice cried out over the expanse of black. Tim tried to return the call, but couldn't make a sound. Tim! He heard again, and the fleshy slapping noise grew louder this time. Suddenly, Tim was struck with such force that it blew him off his feet. He fell back and crashed to the ground. As he lay there, he could see a white light strobing faintly overhead. It grew, and in his peripheral, he caught a glimpse of his antagonist as it scurried away. As his vision was returning, he could make out a figure standing over him and he could feel it slapping his cheek. Tim, come on, Tim, I need you, Tristan pleaded. You just lay there with your eyes open and the occasional moan. Ugh, we need to get back. I just don't know what to do. We don't have anyone to turn to. I can't call Elise, she's only 15. And my dad would freak out if I called him. I'll be right back. I need a soda. Tristan placed his hand on Tim's for a moment, grabbing it in solidarity and then releasing it and dragging it away with him. He closed the door behind him and walked past the nurse's station. Please keep an eye on him, Jessica. I need something to wake me up, he told the pretty young redhead behind the counter. She smiled. You keep it up. You could be a commercial for Coke, she shot back. He chuckled some, enjoying the moment as it slipped away, the further he drifted from the cute young nurse. Tristan didn't get it. He knew Tim was having some trouble from the moment they arrived, and he felt it too, but not like that. When Tim fell in through the door at the bar entrance, he hadn't known what was going on, but he was terrified. 
The paramedics didn't seem phased at all. They said they were doing this all over town, with the flu outbreak being what it was. But the doctors determined it wasn't flu-related. Tristan had removed Tim's wallet. They couldn't know who Tim was, and nobody could see the things within. He played it safe and told them he'd found the guy and was concerned as a good Samaritan. Maybe staying by the stranger's bedside was a little much, but he had nowhere else to go. It had been a long three days since they had dropped the two off at New York Presbyterian Hospital, Brooklyn Methodist. Tristan approached the soda machine with a bit of excitement. He didn't often allow himself sugary treats. He slipped in his quarters and punched the button. A few clicks and a thud, and his soda dropped into the slot below. Jessica was right. He had been downing a lot of these. This wasn't like him. How appropriate, though. Better for her to not get to know the real him. Hopefully, he wouldn't be here much longer. The Coca-Cola bottle, with the beautifully painted festive Santa Claus label, fizzed as it was turned upside down, and Tristan felt completely at ease as he dumped the freezing beverage down his throat. As he walked back past the nurse's station, Jessica shouted for him. Excuse me, Trist... er, Mr. Edmund? I have something for you. She handed him a folded paper. Tristan thanked her and smiled. Part of him hoped it was her phone number, and part of him knew that could never work out, since he'd be missing for the next 25 years or so. His daydreaming came to a halt as he unfolded the paper and read the words. Get back to Essen's house and leave. January 24th, 1995. Tristan pulled his ranger's jacket up to cover his neck as he stepped out from the Cortland Street subway station and into the cold, crisp New York City air. He immediately spotted his destination and briskly walked toward it, newspaper in hand. At the hospital that morning, he had picked up the paper and read about the beginning of the O.J. Simpson trial. That had hit him hard. He had barely remembered it as a child, but it was still news before he had left 2020. He was literally living history. Walking down Church Street, he took in the skyscrapers that loomed over him with a quiet reverence that no one around him would understand for another six or more years. Tristan could feel a heaviness in his chest. So many thoughts whirled in his mind as he stared up at the Twin Towers. If he couldn't save his cousin, he might have to relive this again. If that were true, though, could he live with himself, knowing that he could save so many lives, stop so much pain, not just here, but around the world? Could he sit by and do nothing? What would the world be like if he stopped this? Would it be better? Worse? Could he even stop it at all? Should he stop it? He stood there and stared for Lord knows how long, completely unaware that thousands of people were walking right past him. They themselves completely clueless that he had held the key to safety from what would befall this neighborhood and ripple out through the entire world. Hey! An older gentleman shouted from nearby. Tristan, broken from his trance, turned to see a frumpy man dressed in clothes that were suited for function over form, eyeing him through a disheveled array of gray hairs that sprung out from his clothes like a lion's mane. You see it too, huh? The old man inquired, pointing a plump thumb towards the buildings. Sorry? Tristan replied, confused. See what? I ain't one of them, boy. Don't you pretend like you don't see it. It's all going to be gone soon, and you can see it. I can tell by your eyes. 
The old man's face was inches from Tristan's. He could smell the stench of the streets on him, but that wasn't what was bothering him. Was this man another time traveler? How do you know? Tristan gasped, the only words he could think to ask escaping his lips. The old man grunted. You ain't the only one who knows about them furballs. Tristan balked and shook his head. Wait, what? That's right, boyo. Charlie Heston's message got to me, too. This is all going to be gone one day, and most likely in your time, not mine. The apes own it all soon. Best make your peace with that. He clapped a hand on Tristan's shoulder and walked away. Standing in a phone booth, staring down at the 1994-95 yellow pages, Tristan couldn't help but be constantly reminded it wasn't 2020 anymore. More importantly, it had been that way for almost two weeks now, and he was getting desperate. So desperate, in fact, that he had pounded in the same number almost a dozen times now and hung up. He had leaned his head in frustration against the glass for so long that it had thawed some of the ice that had formed on the outside of the construct. The inner conflict had risen to a crescendo. He had to do something. He had a plan, but it wasn't a great one. In fact, if Tim were conscious, he would probably relate how terrible of an idea it was until Tristan would have to relent and give up on the thought altogether. The lack of a comrade to throw ideas by meant that even the worst ones were the best available to him. He pressed the cold keypad again and inserted several quarters. He breathed out loudly and waited. The ringtone started, and he fought against himself to slam the handle back down on the receiver. It took several rings before the other side picked up, the handle clunking clumsily before a squeaky young voice answered, almost overly politely. Edmund Residence, how can I help you? He was completely focused on speaking to his father. Is Rick Edmund there? he asked, attempting to be as nonchalant as possible. Of course, fooling a child wasn't difficult, but he didn't want to get cocky. Just a moment, please. He paused for a second and muffled the receiver, though not enough that Tristan would miss the next words uttered loudly. Dad! Phone! Tristan blanched visibly and hung the phone up quicker than he ever had in his entire life. A vision came to him. His father, drunk in the mid-afternoon, screaming at him for playing a phone prank. He'd been grounded for a week after that. This had happened. This had always happened. His dirty blonde hair fell down over his eyes as he slumped back against the glass wall with a loud sigh. He could feel himself breaking. It had been too long, and the cash he had brought with him was stretching thin. Tim seemed no better than he had been when he had first been rushed to the hospital. Tristan had said he didn't know the man, but... Having spent the past few weeks by his bedside, he doubted anyone believed that. He had taken the two back in time so they could find a way to save his mother and Tim's parents from a plane crash, only to have shown up almost two weeks late. And now, Tim was in a coma and there was absolutely no silver lining on this shit cloud. A knock woke him from his depression, but it didn't force his eyes open, nor did it make him move at all. New York still has tons of phone booths. Find another one. He grumbled, sniffing loudly as he felt his emotions pressing back against their confines. And what if I'm just looking for a friend? A familiar female voice asked 
as the door slowly slid open, and Jess, the nurse from the hospital, peeked in. Tristan stood up quickly, clearing his throat and wiping the tears from his eyes. He took a quick moment to clean himself up as he stood up and stepped out of the booth. Hey, Jess. Look, I'm sorry. I... Jess interrupted him before he could continue. I just finished my shift and I'm starved. I've been craving smiling pizza all day. Why don't you come with me so I don't have to eat alone? My treat. Tristan choked back a response and nodded, following her as the two walked down the cold, snow-strewn street. Jess jumped into conversation right away, leaping over how she had found him. She went into her day and what else had gone on, complaining about the on-duty doctor and a nurse who loved to give her a hard time. They each grabbed a pepperoni slice and a Coke and took a seat at a table in a corner. Tristan hadn't realized how hungry he was until he took that first bite. He could feel himself salivate as he continued to take bite after bite. Jess watched him with a slight smile. Taking a sip of her drink, she broke him from his gastronomical reverie. So, what is Tim like when he isn't sleeping every hour of the day? She asked, innocently, brushing a black strand of hair back behind her ear. Tristan looked up from his bite, trying not to look surprised by her question, but failing miserably. Tim? Who's Tim? Tristan was a terrible liar. Come on, Tristan. You've been in the hospital for weeks now, watching over a John Doe that you supposedly have never met before. We don't get a lot of good mysteries around here, and rarely do we have the time to solve them. I've caught you chatting with him from time to time. You're comfortable with him. You obviously know him. And you've called him Tim I don't know how many times. Anyone else would have called him John. Tristan took a short sip and nodded. Busted, he remarked, chagrined. Does this stay between us? I can't afford for things to go badly here. Jess chuckled. The closest I get to mystery in my life is the rare occasion when someone hasn't spoiled the X-Files before I have the chance to watch my taped copy of the new episode. Mum's the word. Tristan laughed for the first time in what felt like too long and nodded while Jess took a big bite of her pizza. Ah, so nurse by day and video pirate by night, huh? Okay, you got me. Tim is my cousin. How he hurt himself, that's all a mystery to me, too. That part is the truth. The reality is, we aren't supposed to be here. I have limited funds, but we have no one who can help us. No one to get us out of here. I'm lost in a city I know all too well, if that makes any sense at all. Jess finished chewing, shaking her head. When she finally gulped the bite down, she smiled sheepishly. No, it doesn't really make sense, Tristan. What do you mean by we aren't supposed to be here? That's the weird part. You obviously know the city well enough. You aren't foreign, and yet you're hiding your cousin's identity? Are you criminals? Are you hiding from the police or something? Tristan grinned and shook his head. No, that would almost be preferable. I... I don't know how to explain it, Jessica. I... It's all way too much for anyone to understand. Tristan recoiled slightly when Jessica placed a hand on his. He relaxed and slid his hand back under hers as he saw the serious look on her face. Look, Tristan, I've had a really great time getting to know you, but the mystery is killing me. I'm a sucker for mysteries. I think we've gotten pretty close over the last little while, and 
I'm a healer too. That doesn't just mean that I stitch people up. It means I help in any way I can. So please, what can I do to prove to you that you can trust me? Tristan remained silent for quite some time, considering his options. He took another bite of his pizza, snapping the long lines of gooey mozzarella before they made a mess of him, chewed and swallowed. He took another drink of his Coke and then pointed at her. Do you have a credit card? How close to the limit is it? She eyed him suspiciously. Credit card? Yeah, I have one. I only use it for emergencies, though, so there isn't much money owed on it. Good, he responded quickly, holding out his hand. Give it to me. Jessica laughed nervously. Give you my credit card? Now I'm afraid you are a criminal. Tristan pushed his hand a little closer. The secret is huge. The mystery is huge. It's worth it. Besides, I could run off and spend the limit easily, but you can report it stolen and you'll get everything back anyways. I just need you to know that you can trust me. You'll either get it back when we're done with this conversation, or I'll run off and you can call the bank and maybe catch me before I spend everything you've got. She eyed him long and hard, but after a short while, she sighed and rummaged through her purse. She pulled out an American Express card and passed it to him slowly. This is a big deal. You remember when these used to get you into restaurants that wouldn't take Visa or MasterCard? This was my ticket. Tristan smiled, slid it into his back pocket, and shook his head. No, I don't remember that at all. In fact, I read the newspaper every day, just so everything around me makes some kind of sense. Jess didn't know how to take this, and her worry increased when she saw her card disappear. You want mystery, Jessica? All right, here's mystery for you. He pulled out his wallet and slipped his license from the plastic sheath. Handing it to her, he could see her eyeing it strangely. That's pretty, she started as she reached for it. What state is that from? Tristan remained silent as she took it and looked it over. Her voice changed from a normal volume to a hushed murmur as she tried to make sense of what she was seeing. Wait, is this new? They just changed the licenses in 92. Why would they... You were born in 80... What? That's not right. You'd be... Her mouth dropped some as she frantically scanned the license. She flipped it several times, scanned it for any irregularities, of which there were many, but none that made it feel any less real. She went over every detail, held it up to see if the faces matched. Tristan chuckled at this. I got a haircut right before they took that. It's grown out a little since then, he said, tussling his hair a little. This expires in 2021, Jess whispered, holding the card up towards Tristan. He took it back and slipped it back into his wallet. Yeah, big mystery. You might enjoy this one if I can get you to believe me. She shook her head. It has to be forged somehow. What? How? What is going on, Tristan? She was still whispering, afraid someone else might hear them. Tristan waved his hands and shrugged his shoulders some. Look, I don't know how to explain it, but I think I have an idea. Do you watch The Simpsons? For the first time in several minutes, Jessica relaxed. Everyone watches The Simpsons. Tristan smiled and nodded. Good. Perfect. And you like mysteries. So, here goes. This summer, 
everyone is going to be talking about The Simpsons. As unlikely as it is to believe, they're going to have a murder mystery cliffhanger. Jessica seemed disappointed. For her, his story was falling apart. Really? That seems kind of dumb. Tristan's eyes widened. Oh, it's not. It's a classic parody on Dallas. Who shot JR? People love it, and no one knows who the killer is. There will be bets on it and everything. Jessica is beginning to get annoyed, not understanding what is going on. Okay, so the Simpsons do it again and make something that everyone loves. What does this prove right now? Not a thing, but I still have your credit card and I haven't dashed yet, so I've earned some trust. If you suspend your disbelief and just believe me for now, you'll see. If I'm lying or telling the truth, you'll know in September when the new season starts. Jessica tilted her head and pursed her lips. Really? You don't have something a little more immediate? He sighed. I didn't memorize the lottery numbers, if that's what you mean. I'm still a kid right now. I don't remember very much about this year at all, except for those episodes. That's nine months from now, she said, disappointed. Yeah, well, it's 25 years ago for me, he shot back. The two were silent. Tristan finished his slice, not looking up. He had screwed up. He shouldn't have told her any of this. He had no one to trust. He was alone in a way that made every other time he had felt lonely seem laughable. As he chewed on a crunchy piece of crust, he reached into his back pocket and retrieved her credit card. When he attempted to pass it, she pushed his hand away. Ruin the mystery, she stated, her voice stronger than it had been in a while. Who's the killer? Feeling better, Tristan put the card down and smiled slightly. Maggie. Are you serious right now? She looked around the restaurant. This has to be the worst episode of Candid Camera ever. No, I'm serious. Come on. It's The Simpsons. Of course, the killer is a joke. That's the point. So, if you can just believe this to be true, all of it, you'll know in September if I was lying or not. In the meantime, I'm going to tell you a crazy story. Get everything off my chest. And then we go from there. Sound good? Jessica looked as though she was going to agree when the napkin dispenser on the table violently knocked over and fell onto the floor. Neither of them had come close to touching it. As the two stared down at it, Tristan thought he saw a shadow loom over him in his peripheral. He turned to see what it was, but there was nothing there. His eyes met with Jessica's, who now seemed to at least somewhat believe him. Okay, I don't have a choice. I'll believe for now. So, you're not from here, now. What does that mean exactly? Tristan patted her hand and took a quick sip of his drink. It means that whatever happened to Tim isn't normal. See, some family members died in a plane crash about a month ago. I got the crazy idea to come back here and stop it. We arrived late and Tim fell into the coma. Whatever it is though, it's obviously not normal because you guys can't seem to get him to wake up. So now I'm stuck here with him and I have no idea what to do. Jessica had finished her pizza and was nodding along. She wasn't sure if she believed him or not, so she was just treating this all as one big hypothetical. It was all she could do to remain sane for the moment. Wow, okay, so pushing aside all the weirdness that I can't possibly fathom at this point, do you even have a way back? Like, is your time machine hidden away somewhere, or... 
Do you have special watches that will send you back to your time? Tristan couldn't help but laugh out loud. Hearing it like that, he couldn't believe she had taken him seriously at all. Jessica began to laugh with him, nervously at first, but soon they were chuckling together. No, he started. It's not like that at all. I don't even know how to explain for it to make sense anyways. We have a way home, but Tim's stuck in the hospital and they won't let him out the way he is. I'm starting to think I'm either going to have to kidnap him or go back without him and pick him up another time. He pushed his paper plate aside, frustrated. Good, Jessica exclaimed. Tristan was taken aback, but she didn't seem to notice at all. This is something I can actually help with. She produced her hospital badge and winked at him. We should be able to get Tim out, but what do we do from there? Can you get him to whatever or wherever it is you need to go to so you can leave? Tristan nodded. We just need to get upstate to Sands Point. From there, we can do whatever we have to in order to get home again. Great, she exclaimed. I'll borrow my mother's car. I can meet you at the hospital later tonight, around 6 p.m. We'll sneak him out during dinner. What about you? Won't you get in trouble for losing a patient? Tristan asked, worried he was putting too much on a stranger. I'll figure something out, she said, clearly excited for the adventure. Jessica stood up and clapped Tristan on the shoulder. This is easily the stupidest thing I have ever done in my life, but I can't tell you how excited I am. I'll see you tonight. She grabbed her credit card from the table and dashed off, leaving Tristan alone in the pizzeria. Was he taking advantage of Jessica's kindness? He needed the help, but he could be ruining a life by trying to save his cousin. He was lost in thought when he heard a loud smash. Tristan looked up to see chili flakes and glass shards raining down on a couple by the window. The two were cloaking themselves from the raining spices while looking at him with a mixture of fear and anger. The cashier, a tall, thin, dark-haired man with a heavy five o'clock shadow, called over to him. What the hell do you think you're doing? Tristan looked around, but there was no one else in the main dining area, save for him and the couple. Wait, what? He stammered, trying to figure out what was going on. Get the hell out of here and don't come back, the proprietor called as Tristan ran away, confused and worried. Tristan headed back to the cheap hotel he had been staying in and gathered the things he would be taking with him. He enjoyed his last shot at 90s TV while thoughts of time travel danced in his head. Had he changed things recklessly by bringing Jessica in on their troubles? Would time continue on the same as it had? First chance he got, was he going to have to remember to watch Who Shot Mr. Burns Part 2? If it wasn't Maggie, he had done something pretty terrible. Jessica and Tristan met outside of the main entrance to the hospital a few hours later. Jessica was standing in front of a wheelchair with a bag stuffed with clothes. Tristan looked at her questioningly. I thought about it long and hard. If I go in there, someone might realize that I'm there when I shouldn't be, and I'll lose my job. So you're going to go inside, change into some scrubs, and use my badge. No one looks at them anyways, but it will at least make you look like you belong. You're going to go inside, detach him from the equipment that we're using to observe him, pull out his IV, and then bring him down to the parking lot in the wheelchair. Any questions? Tristan asked about how to properly detach Tim from the monitoring devices, and how to pull out the IV without hurting him. She explained things as simply as she could, and he was on his way. 
Twenty minutes later, Tristan was wheeling Tim through the parking lot towards Jessica, who had the car turned on and ready to go. They helped Tim into the back seat, propping him up against the window with a pillow. The wheelchair was placed in the trunk, and the three headed off into the terrible New York City traffic. Several hours had passed by with the two making small talk when they heard a groan from the back seat. Tim's eyes were opening as he stretched, looking about confused. What happened at that bar? He asked slowly, seeing Tristan first and then realizing that they weren't alone. It's a really long story and I don't have any good answers for you. Sorry. The important thing is you're okay and we're headed back to Essence House, Tristan said, relieved to see his cousin finally conscious again. We're going where? Why? And sorry, who is she? Tim asked, caution taking over for the time being. I'm a friend who is temporarily believing in time travel to save two weirdos who were taking up a perfectly good hospital bed for far too long. Jessica shot back with a wry smile. Before Tim could say anything, Tristan stopped him. I had no other choice, man. Let me explain. By the time the three arrived outside of the Essence House grounds, Tim understood what had gone on, and as much as he wasn't happy with it, it was all completely out of his hands. He thanked Jessica, told her it was a pleasure to meet her, and thanked her for taking care of him. I don't know what happened to you completely, but take care of yourself, Tim. Try not to time travel for at least another week. Tim laughed and nodded. Yeah, I'll do that, he said, opening the large Onyx Essence House gates and stepping through. Tristan regarded Jessica for a long time, unsure of how to share his appreciation. I I don't know what to say, Jessica. I can't honestly know if I would have believed me if the roles were reversed. Thank you so much. He held his arms out for a hug, which she gladly accepted. As far as I'm concerned, I just did a nice thing for two strangers. This won't officially be weird until the end of May, when I find out if you know what you're talking about or not. She leaned in and kissed him lightly on the cheek before stepping back. Thank you for the weirdest story I can never tell, the young woman remarked, stepping back and watching as he nodded with a smile, turned, and headed through the gates. The two made their way to the wine cellar door on the left side of the building. They opened it and walked all the way down to the cellar, which looked to have a lot more wine than there had been the last time they had been there. All right, Tristan said, unsure of himself. If I'm right, all we have to do is concentrate on going back to January 2nd, 2020, in the early morning, so we know that we won't come back before we left. Hopefully, that works. Tim gulped. If it doesn't, I hope you end up in the coma this time. I shouldn't be punished twice for you wanting to do something stupid. Tristan walked back up the stairs and shrugged his shoulders. I guess I deserve that. He opened the door and stepped up to find himself temporarily blinded by a bright light. January 23rd 1995. Seven-year-old Tristan sat in the attic window, staring out the same window he had shared with his cousins only a couple weeks prior. A fountain of tears poured down his pink, chubby cheeks as he sobbed. Crying won't change anything. They don't belong here, his father said in a cold, dry tone. They do too, Tristan lashed out. Rick took a step back and refocused. 
something he had been struggling to do in recent days. Look, Tristan, I've been through this before, and it's hard. But Tim and Elise are safer with their grandmother right now, and we aren't going to be staying here much longer anyhow. None of us belong here. This place is cursed. Tristan began crying hysterically. His little world was falling apart. His mother was gone. His aunt and uncle were gone. His father was not the same. And now his cousins were being taken from him. He was scared. Come down and say goodbye. Then you can come back up and cry all you want, his father said as he turned to head down the hall. This chill in the air outside did not faze the older woman as she carried a box down the steps and placed it in the car. Tim, please focus. We need to load up quickly. I'd like to make the drive straight through to Chicago tonight. All in one drive? That's like a hundred hours. Tim dropped to the ground. Elise, please come help your brother compose himself, Grandma Silver called as she headed back for another box. Tristan passed her on the walkway without a glance. He slowly made his way to Tim. Hey, he said. Tim laid in the snow, defeated. Hey, he replied. Bye, I guess, Tristan said awkwardly. Yeah, I guess so, Tim answered. Elise walked up behind them, towering over Tristan. She said, Hey. This really blows, Tim blurted out as he rose to his feet. Elise nodded in agreement. It does. We've had a lot of fun in this house. Do you think we'll see Grandpa again? Tim asked Elise. I hadn't thought of that. I hope we can come back to see him, Elise remarked with concern. Daddy says... None of us belong here. We're leaving too, Tristan suddenly interrupted. We'll see about that. He can't do this. I'll call Aunt Florence when we get to Chicago, and we'll see what she has to say about all of this. Somebody grunted behind her. That woman just had a baby and lost a big part of her family. You will do nothing of the kind. Grandma Silver spread her arms, and the three children came in for a warm group hug. She held them tight. I know this is hard, children. Tristan, you mind your father. Tim, Elise, we'll have as good a life as we can muster in Chicago. Things won't be like this forever. They often say, time heals all. Tristan soaked in that phrase and held on tight to his family. Things couldn't stay that way forever. The old lady was right. He would have to trust that time would heal all. Theme music by Carol Cockrell.